and I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ear, having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we consider your word this morning, open our hearts and minds to understand and to desire to do your will, to love you more deeply, and Lord, to bring honor and glory to you as we live out the gospel in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. 2 Timothy is the last letter that was penned by Paul before his execution at the hand of the Emperor Nero. Um, Chapter 4 literally records for us some of Paul's last words, and that's why I've titled this message today, Paul's Last Words. Last words shortly before his death. Little did I know when I came upon this passage or when I decided to preach on this passage, that we were about to lose one of the more influential Orthodox Christian leaders of our day, Tim Keller. Uh, A tweet from one of his sons reads this, Dad waited until he was alone with Mom. She kissed him on the forehead, and he breathed his last. We take comfort in some of his last words. Quote, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest, end quote. I thought of, for to me to depart and be with Christ is better by far. In the words of Paul, Tim Keller fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. And like Paul, by God's grace, was used by him to advance Christ's kingdom through the ministry that God entrusted to him. And we are thankful for that ministry that Tim Keller had. This morning, my prayer is that we might all gain some strength for in our fight, some endurance in our race, and some encouragement in our faith as we consider these last words of Paul. And I've broken down the text this morning under five headings. And I know if you go to a homiletics class, five headings may be a couple too many. 
You should have three, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do less than five. So in verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at Paul's charge. And in verses 3 and 4, we're going to see Paul's warning. In verse 5, we will hear Paul's admonition. And then verses 6 and 7 highlight Paul's own faithfulness. And in verse 8, we're going to learn of Paul's reward. Okay, so if you're a note taker, we're going to do Paul's charge, Paul's warning, Paul's admonition, Paul's faithfulness, and then Paul's reward. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I want you to notice first the perspective from which Paul's charge comes. And there are two elements to his perspective. First, Paul, Paul tells Timothy to remember that his life is being lived in the very presence of God and Christ Jesus. This focuses on present reality. Timothy, right now, you are living in the presence of God. I wonder if you've ever noticed, and I didn't notice this until I was preparing for this sermon this morning, but I wonder if you ever noticed Matthew's gospel begins with the account of Jesus' birth, including a quote from Isaiah the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it ends just before Christ's ascension with Jesus' promise, I am with you always. Did you ever see that before? It's a bookend. God with us, and I am with you always. A little bit later in this chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul is going to say, At my defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. God with us. I am with you always. The Lord stood by me. Isn't it fantastic to know that we are absolutely never alone? Never. God is with us. Moment by moment, if we belong to Jesus Christ, we know that we are not alone. He is with us. But when Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, he's not simply reminding Timothy that God is with him. He is making that point. God is with him. But he is speaking also of God's authority over him and everything that he does and his accountability to God. In other words, in everything you do, remember, God is with you. The second element in Paul's perspective focuses on future reality. That's the present reality. But the second element focuses on the future reality. Christ as the one who will, quote, judge the living and the dead by and by his appearing and his kingdom. Even though Paul's earthly life is about to end, he is still looking to the future, to the time of Jesus' second coming. And twice in these eight verses, Paul refers to Jesus as judge. 
I just want you to hold on to that as we work our way through here, okay? But Jesus' first coming was for the purpose of providing the remedy for our rebellion against God. He came to pay the debt that we owe God so that we, by faith in him, might be reconciled to God. And right now, uh, and he said, and remember that he did say, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And right now, through the church, he is still seeking the lost. But when he returns, he is coming as the righteous judge who will bring the final verdict against sin and all of its negative consequences and the final verdict against unrepentant sinners, which is banishment from the presence, what he's been talking about, the presence of God for eternity. So in light of these two realities, the fact that God is with us, that God is with you. The fact that Jesus Christ is going to judge the living and the dead. Jesus will return. He will be king on this earth. In light of these realities, Paul charges Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. Proclaim the word of truth, the gospel. That's how Paul, that's what Paul calls it in Colossians chapter one. The word of truth, the gospel. This is the beginning of the charge. Never stop publicly declaring the good news of repentance for forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus, excuse me, through faith in Jesus Christ. It is through the word and faith in it that entrance is made into the kingdom of God. As Peter says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news, the gospel, the good news that was preached to you. Throughout Paul's letters to Timothy, he's been imploring him to guard that truth. Guard the truth of the message. And here he is once again concerned first and foremost with that. He's near the end of his life. And what is first and foremost on his mind? Guarding the message of the gospel. And he tells him, you need to proclaim this gospel in season and out of season. What he means is proclaim the gospel when it's convenient when people will listen to the gospel, and when God willing, through his grace, some will will respond to the gospel, that's preaching in season, but also proclaim it when people don't want to listen. Proclaim it when people oppose you. Proclaim it when you are persecuted for proclaiming it in season and out of season. And then along with the proclamation of the word, Paul tells Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. These are overlapping words, but they really paint a full picture for us as fellow believers uh, working together. To reprove is to point out error. We are naturally bent to believe things that are wrong and to do things that are wrong because of our sinful nature. To reprove is to point out the errors of what we believe and the errors of what we are doing. God has revealed in his word 
what is right and what is wrong. And we need to submit our lives to that truth that has been revealed. To rebuke is to warn those who do not heed the reproof. And then to exhort is to urge a person on in following the path of righteousness by denying oneself, taking up the cross, and following Jesus. Urging them on to value God's word and God's way above our own way or the world's way. But notice that Paul says these things must be done patiently. He tells Timothy to do it patiently. So Paul's charge to Timothy centers around the proclamation and application of the gospel to every aspect of a person's life. I love how what John Stott says. He says, we have no liberty to invent our message, but only to communicate the word which God has spoken and has now committed to the church as a sacred trust. This is not our message. This is the word of God. So next in verses 3 and 4, we see Paul's warning. That was Paul's charge. Now we see Paul's warning. In the warning, we find the reason Paul has given his charge to proclaim the word. And I'm going to read these verses again. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul warns that a time is coming when people will not put up with sound teaching of the word of God. Instead, they will surround themselves with teachers who tell them what they want to hear. They will find leaders who encourage and support them in doing whatever they want to do. And from Paul's writings preserved for us in the New Testament, we know that he had to address this reality even in his own time. In fact, much of First and Second Timothy, Paul is dealing with these false teachers. But it is important for us to understand that Paul's warning isn't necessarily simply for those outside of the church. It is to be assumed that those who have never received the word of truth for themselves will follow teachers and leaders who affirm them in their sin. That's what the world is about. Paul is concerned here about those who have claimed to put their faith in Christ, who may be drawn away by what he calls fine-sounding arguments in Colossians chapter 2. Maybe that they may be drawn away and, and turn away from the truth of the gospel. The danger to the church and its gospel message is far more sinister from within the church than from without. Gifted and skilled teachers manipulate God's word to make it fit their own desires and purposes. And this is what Paul is warning Timothy about. And this is what we need to be alert to. So that's Paul's warning. And that brings us to Paul's admonition to Timothy, just in verse 5. In light of the fact that there will be people, even within the church, who simply, especially within the church, who simply want teachers to affirm them in their own fleshly desires, Paul tells Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. 
He begins by telling Timothy to be sober-minded. The Greek word translated sober-minded literally means sober, not a wine drinker. Paul's emphasis is that if you are going to be able to refute false teachers, you need to have good mental acuity. You need to be able to think clearly and apply the truth of God's word well. But when you do that, you will also be resisted by those who are twisting God's word to serve their own end, and you may be subjected to abuse. That is why Paul then admonishes Timothy to endure suffering or endure hardship, some of the translations put it that way. Just prior to these admonitions, in chapter 3, Paul had told Timothy, all who desire to live godly, live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As Peter says, we should not be surprised by that, but by God's grace, we need to endure it. Then Paul tells Timothy to do the work of, of an evangelist. This, I think he's just reiterating to Timothy, preach the word. Our mission is to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, don't forget that mission. Keep focused on it and don't be distracted. And then he closes his admonition to Timothy with fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. In other words, don't stop until you complete the task that God has given you. You you aren't done until this life is over, which we see from Paul himself. And this final admonition to Timothy segues then into Paul's reflection on his own ministry as he considers that he has fulfilled the purpose given to him by God. He's done it. And so now we take a look at Paul's faithfulness. He says it this way, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul knows that his own death is imminent. In a short time, he will be with Christ. As he passes the baton, so to speak, and encourages Timothy to fulfill his ministry, he looks back on his own, and I think Paul is satisfied. Paul is satisfied that he has accomplished what God has called him to accomplish. He's fought the good fight. The words fought and fight are not military terms. When I first was reading this, that's where my mind went. You know, we're in spiritual warfare. Paul talks about that often. But these words really aren't picturing the military aspect of our struggle. They're athletic. It's an athletic metaphor. And he probably has in mind what he says next, the race, when he talks about the race. But Paul is saying that he has faithfully put forth his efforts in this noble context. uh, contest. That's how it could be translated as well, uh, an athletic contest. He's put forth his efforts in that contest. In fact, it is the most noble of all contests, the ministry of the gospel. And he has fulfilled his purpose as an ambassador for Christ, proclaiming reconciliation with God through faith in Christ. 
And it has been quite a fight for him, has it not? If you're familiar with Paul's life, he has suffered at the hands of Jews and Gentiles, yet opposition to him never caused him to waver or slow down. He has persevered, but for now, for him, the race is over. He's finished it. He's done. He's about to cross the finish line. And through all he has endured, he has kept moving toward that finish line and has kept the faith. Now this could mean, he could be talking about the fact that he has preserved the integrity of the message of the gospel that was entrusted to him. Or it could mean that he was he himself has remained faithful to, loyal to, what he called the deposit entrusted to him. Perhaps it means both. But Paul has finished well, and he is looking forward to being absent from the body and present with the Lord. He is also looking forward to the consummation of all things when Jesus Christ returns. And that brings us to our final consideration for this morning, Paul's reward. Again, I want to read verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It is critical, it's, it's important that we do not read the word henceforth as therefore. Very critical. In other words, Paul is not saying, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's not what Paul is saying. He is not claiming that through his actions, he has earned the crown or the wreath of righteousness. Again, he has this race metaphor, this athletic metaphor in mind where the winners of the race in Roman times would receive a crown or a wreath that they would wear as the winner. We give medals out today, but they wore a wreath. He is saying that now, as he has completed his ministry, what remains for him, what comes next for him, is to receive the crown of righteousness on the day of Christ's judgment after he returns to set up his kingdom on earth, that kingdom that we are looking forward to that will be eternal. And the clue that helps us understand this uh, is what, the second half of verse 8 says, he says, the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All. You catch that? You, me, all who have loved his appearing. I love that phrase. Paul is speaking of all who have put their faith in Christ. Paul's reward and our reward is the same. And I believe that what the crown of righteousness is talking about, and there's always arguments about what the different crowns in the New Testament are talking about, but I believe what the crown of righteousness is, is the reality that when we will stand fully completely righteous before God when Christ returns in the righteousness of Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us through our faith in him. And that crown of righteousness will be on the day when we are fully righteous. We no longer struggle with sin. 
no longer desire anything that is in opposition to the holiness and the purity and the goodness of God. That's what the crown of righteousness, I believe, is. I think of the words of the fourth verse of, On Christ the solid rock I stand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. I think that's what Paul is talking about. That's why Paul loved his appearing. That's why we love his appearing. When he appears, we will be crowned with the righteousness of Christ forever. Remember the Apostle John said in the third chapter of his first letter that uh, it doesn't appear yet what we shall be like, but we know that when we see Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will be fully righteous finally. So what is our takeaway from the passage this morning. Why, why did I choose this passage? I'll be honest with you. First, I needed to hear what Paul said here. And I need to continue to remind myself, I am a person who at times is too easily discouraged by what I see around me. And I need to be reminded continually to preach the word I need to be reminded to be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I need that message. But secondly, I believe that we are living in the time that Paul said was coming, the time when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And sadly, sadly, this is true about people within the church, not just our culture at large. And so by God's grace and his Holy Spirit within us, we must hold firm to the eternal, unchanging truth of the Word of God, beginning with the gospel And then including what Paul says in Acts 20, 27, the whole counsel of God. God has given his word to us to teach us how to live lives that flourish in the world that he created. And whatever rules, whatever commands he has given are given to give us the best life that we could have. But it is God's word, the truth, that tells us and teaches us that. We must reprove, rebuke, and exhort one another with patience. We need to encourage one another to follow Christ, to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith, even as opposition to us increases. We must expect and endure retaliation, but... We must not respond in kind. Do you follow me? We must expect and endure retaliation, but we must not respond in kind. Remember that more than once we are admonished in the New Testament that we should never render evil for evil and that we should not take vengeance on our enemies. It is up to God. And so these, these are Paul's last words. Now, I hope and pray 
that these are not going to be my last words to you. But, as Pastor Thomas wrote in my 70th birthday card, I am old and advanced in age. <laughs> and this is kind of, that's funny. It's cute. I like that. I laughed. But this is a serious message. I am old and advanced in age, and I want to exhort, I want to urge you who are younger to stand firm in the truth of God's word. You are going to face larger and more difficult obstacles in your race than we who are older have faced. While we are still here, while we older people are still here, we will continue to run alongside you. But when we are gone, do not lose heart. Don't fear the enemy, because he's already been defeated. Proclaim Christ not only as Savior of all who believe in him, but also as the righteous judge of all, both living and dead. Love Christ supremely and love his appearing. Live each day in expectant, in expectant anticipation of the day when we will receive the crown of righteousness and literally be fully free, finally be fully free from sin and its effects. And until then, love one another. Stir up one another to love and good works, as I said earlier, by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. Let's pray. Our Father and God in heaven, thank you. Thank you for these words of Paul. And thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit within us that enables us to live obediently to these words. Help us, Lord God, to be true witnesses for the glory of Jesus Christ, both as our Savior as, and as our King and Judge. And Lord, we ask that through our witness to those around us, that you would bring others to faith in him as well. Build your kingdom through the testimony of your church here for your glory. We ask this. Amen. Amen.